The all-new Toyota RAV4 asks, what if? What if your ride was refined and rugged at the same time? Introducing the all-new RAV4 Hybrid. 208 combined horsepower and standard all-wheel drive make it the most powerful RAV4. Plus, with its head-turning style and breakaway speed, it's bound to change the way you think of a hybrid. The all-new RAV4 Hybrid. Toyota. Let's go places. Horsepower. Ratings achieved using the required premium unleaded gasoline with an octane rating of 91 or higher. Premium fuel is not used. Performance will decrease. Welcome to Creating a Family. Talk about infertility and adoption. Today we're going to be talking all things IVF transfers, fresh versus frozen, three-day versus five days, and other controversial topics or, or questionable, not questionable, but interesting topics associated with transferring embryos in IVF cycles. I think you're really going to enjoy this show. Here's a sample of what you're going to hear. I think that in general it, there may be a trend towards lower uh, live birth rates or pregnancy rates with a day three transfer versus a day five. But it's not really a reflection of the timing of the transfer. What we have to consider is that a patient who's having a day three transfer, especially at this point in time where we are more advanced in the lab, those are more likely to be embryos that were developing more slowly or we had fewer embryos to work with or we were concerned that those embryos may not make it to day five. I'm Dawn Davenport. I'm the director of Creating a Family. We are the national infertility and adoption education and support nonprofit. And you can find us online at creatingafamily.org. We produce lots of resources. In fact, we add five or four to five, two pieces of resource, uh, resources to our site each week. We also have multimedia guides, and we have one that I think you will find particularly helpful, and that is how to choose an infertility clinic. We include, it's a multimedia guide, so we include resources utilizing all the cutting-edge digital media, and we include questionnaires, we include tip sheets, we can include uh, uh, fact sheets, you name it, expert Q&As. Uh, on what you should look for when choosing a clinic, uh, how do you find clinics, you name it, we try to cover it. You can access that uh, resource at our website, creatingafamily.org. Under Resources, uh, on the horizontal menu, hover over and then click on eGuides. It will get you right there. The Creating a Family radio show is underwritten by our corporate sponsor, Faring Pharmaceutical. We truly appreciate their support, and please note that this show would not happen without their generous support. This show is also supported by Creating a Family's gold sponsors, and it is through their generous support that we're able to bring you this show. Some of our wonderful gold sponsors include Manhattan Cryobank. They are dedicated to helping clients have healthy babies by analyzing a client's DNA in relation to the donor's DNA in order to uh, provide the clients with a personalized catalog of safer donor matches. We also have RMA Associates of New Jersey. They are a recognized scientific and patient care leader in the field of infertility. They have 10 offices and 21 physicians throughout New Jersey, and they maintain an IVF delivery rate well above the national average. We also have Snowflake's Embryo Adoption. Did you know that they now have a magazine? It's called Pathway to 
family. And the two is a, the number, not the, the, the written out, the word. It covers topics relevant to both fertility and adoption, and you can get more information at pathwaytofamily.org. Today we're going to be talking about IVF transfers, fresh versus frozen, three-day versus five-day. Our guest to talk about this topic is Dr. Desiree McCarthy-Keith. She is a board-certified reproductive endocrinologist with Georgia Reproductive Specialist in Atlanta. She is also a clinical professor of obstetrics and gynecology at Morehouse School of Medicine, and she was recently honored by Black Health Magazine as one of Atlanta's most influential African-American doctors. Welcome, Dr. McCarthy-Keith, to Creating a Family. Thank you. I'm so glad to be with you, Don. Yeah, um, this is a this is a topic that we hear. Well, let's put it back. We get a lot of talk. Of course, we have a huge online community, and we get a lot of talk about all aspects of the IVF cycle, as you would imagine. But there seems to be a great deal of confusion about the timing of the transfer of the embryos, as well as whether it's better to utilize fresh or frozen embryos. There just seems to be a fair amount of confusion, and I think that reflects the fact that our, the, the medical profession has been shifting in this, and research is, is, is coming in to indicate when and, 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 and when the shift should occur. But I think we need to start with something pretty basic because this is a show that's going to attract uh, people. Uh, um, we kind of call them our basics or our 101-type shows, and we anticipate that this will be one of those shows. So I want to make certain that everyone who's listening knows what we mean when we're talking about timing of transfer, day three, day five. So can you give us a, a brief refresher um, on for anybody who's not well-grounded in the IVF process, a kind of a short and sweet summary of what IVF entails? Sure. Um, so IVF and all of our fertility treatments are really based on the egg reserve or the function of the woman's ovaries naturally. So we always start out establishing that she has healthy reserve for those treatments, and then we take advantage of that. The woman administers daily injections. They're subcutaneous or right under the skin of the abdomen or thigh, injections of hormones that will stimulate multiple eggs to develop. In a natural cycle, one egg develops. With IVF, we want many eggs to develop at one time so we have more to work with in the lab. Average timing for those shots is about 10 to 12 days of daily injections during which the woman is coming into the office for ultrasound and blood work monitoring to monitor as follicles are developing. After follicles have developed, the woman is placed under anesthesia and the eggs are extracted from the ovaries um, with a needle that goes through the vagina and punctures the ovary, and we extract each of those eggs. That procedure takes about 10 or 15 minutes. We take the eggs into our laboratory, and that's where we combine them with sperm, and then we monitor them as they develop in our incubators and go through the stages of embryo development. Once the embryos are developed, what we're talking about today is what do we do, when do we transfer, and can we freeze embryos or test? Are there things that we can do once we get to the end of that process? And it used to be that it was pretty standard for embryos to be transferred from the Petri dish uh, to the woman's uterus at around day three of, of growth. Um, and that transfer is, is a very simple procedure. As I understand it, it is simply a, a catheter inserted into the woman's vagina and through the cervix into the uterus, and the, the embryos are placed there. Am, am I correct first on that? Let me ask that question before you talk to me about the day three part. Absolutely, that's correct. Okay, so it's a um, of all the things you're going through with IVF, that's a it's a that's an office visit, but but not a particularly strenuous one. So right, it used and there's to be no anesthesia. Mm -hmm. Right, 
Yeah, as opposed to with egg retrieval, there is anesthesia. Exactly. Uh, but with the transfer, um, it's uh, it's a very simple process. Um, or at least from the outside, I realize that from a doctor's standpoint, it might be more involved. Um, so it used to be that embryos were usually transferred on day three of growth. But now that transfer more often takes place at day five. Um, first of all, tell us the difference between day three embryo and a day five embryo. It's only two days, so you know it doesn't seem like that big a deal, right? Well, there's a lot of development that happens in those two days, and we've been doing IVF treatments for over 30 years, so techniques in the lab have definitely improved, and it's allowed us to culture embryos further. But, yes, traditionally, when IVF was started, we transferred embryos earlier because we were new at monitoring how embryos developed and how to culture and keep them viable and vigorous until we could transfer them back to the uterus. So from the day of an egg retrieval, when that single egg cell gets fertilized, that single egg cell will begin to divide, and the, egg, the cell number will double over a couple of days. So as those cells divide, when you look at a day three embryo, there's usually going to be at least six to eight separate cells in a little cluster. Those cells will continue to divide, and then they start to merge together into a blastocyst, which is a day five embryo. By day five, the cells have kind of unified into an inner cell mass that will develop into the baby. The cells that will later become the placenta start to develop, and you have a much higher cell number and a more advanced embryo on day five than you do on day three. Okay, and why has there been the shift to uh, is it um, to day five versus a uh, which is a blastocyst, so many hundred cell uh, embryo versus day six, which is a you know ten or under type embryo. Again, we can get a lot more information from a day five embryo. When you have a day three embryo, we can see that it may be developing healthy at that point, but some of those embryos may slow down. They may not even make it to a blastocyst stage. So by culturing to day five, if we are able, the embryos can kind of select themselves out as the ones that are more likely to make it to the blastocyst stage and be a healthy embryo. Also, when it comes to testing an embryo, we have more cells to work with on a day five embryo than a day three. Okay, we're going to come back to the genetic testing. Okay. Yes. So is it kind of like the survival of the fittest thing where, where we've got, you know, the embryos that are the strongest and, and the most likely to implant and grow into a baby um, are the ones that would make it to day five? Is that the, the, the thinking behind that? Absolutely. Okay. And we see that in the lab. You can see those that that seem to be the uh, that are, are replica are, are dividing quickly and on schedule um, are the ones, exactly. and those who arrest are going to arrest, and they're just not dividing as well. Okay. Exactly, and so those are ones that may not even make it to day five. And if we wait, then we can select from the better the better crop if we have enough embryos that are developing well. Okay, it seems to me like it just um, in theory that we would want IVF to as closely as possible mimic what happens in a natural conception cycle. And and as I understand it, you know, the, the, the uh, egg is uh, fertilizes in the ovary, is released, sperm comes in through the vagina, up through the uh, fallopian tube. At some point in the fallopian tube or thereabouts, it uh, fertilizes, the egg fertilizes. It, and the egg slowly but surely makes its way into the uterus. Um, and then hopefully implantation occurs then. 
at what stage in nature, uh, outside of the lab, in a natural cycle, uh, without infertility treatment, at what at what stage is the embryo when it leaves the fallopian tubes and arrives into the uterus? So by the time the embryo reaches back to the uterus, it is a blastocyst. So the egg is ovulated and gets picked up by the end of the fallopian tube, and the sperm travel down to the egg at the end of the tube, and that's where the fertilization happens. And then over the next five or six days is where that embryo development happens in the fallopian tube. So the embryo is developing and slowly migrating back through the tube towards the uterine cavity, and it's really by about day six that an embryo will reach the uterine cavity and be ready to implant. Okay, that's interesting. So so really about if we were looking uh, at a natural cycle, the embryo when it arrives in the uterus and, and, uh, and for implantation is around day six. So in yeah. essence, day five more closely mimics that. It does. And it's really about the timing of the embryo's development, the timing of the development of the endometrium that is most important. So with a day three transfer, that is not an embryo that's going to divide and implant, you know, as soon as you put it back. It still has to develop into a blastocyst and then progress to the implantation. So that will still take place around the same window of time. Why wouldn't we transfer on day six then? If, if, if ultimately a day six embryo is a better mimic of what happens in nature, why not transfer at day six? Sometimes we do. That's not the standard, but it really depends on how the embryos are developing in the lab. And again, with the experience of embryologists, and they, we do very um, fine manipulation of culture media so that it mimics the natural environment in the fallopian tube with the different nutrients and the oxygen levels and things like that are very important to how the embryo is developing. And so we've been able to study um, that environment in the lab and mimic as closely as we can to the normal process that's in the tubes. And at this point, it looks like the day five embryo, when it's at that blastocyst stage, is still going to um, be ready for implantation at the same time. Sometimes if we see embryos that are developing a little bit more slowly, almost the blastocyst, we do culture to day six and can freeze an embryo on day six, and then those are also suitable for transfer. Yeah, you know, the the whole idea of the medium that we use to grow the embryos, embryos is fascinating to me because, of course, as you pointed out, we would like for that medium to as, as, as closely reflect what's happening in the fallopian tubes, but we know that it's not going to be the same. We know that, that nothing in the lab is going to be as good, uh, for most embryos anyway, as being inside the woman. Um, so what, do, what are some of the advances that, we, that are happening now with something as, as, I guess in so many ways it, it sounds boring, but I can't think of anything more important uh, than the medium, the, the in vitro medium that, that, uh, that we're using. Have there been any changes, any major advancements in the last, whatever, X number of years? Um, the main thing is really just mimicking, and the, the levels of different nutrients are different at different levels or portions as you move, move through the tube. So most IVF labs are producing their own media, they're making it themselves, and really focusing on the glucose levels in the media, the lactate, and there are other nutrients that have to be there in order for it to be the best environment for the, um, for the embryo to survive. So I think that in the past couple of years, as we've worked on the media formulations, that is what has allowed us to culture longer in the lab and to be able to observe embryos that are developing healthy 
to the blastocyst stage where we can really select out because that lab environment has improved so much beyond where we were culturing to day two or three and then going ahead and transferring embryos without um, feeling comfortable that they would continue to thrive in the incubator. I'm so glad you, you raised that about the importance of an embryology lab. I, I, the more I learn and the more I know about infertility treatment, the more respect for, uh, I, the more respect I have for the uh, the importance of the embryology lab. It's one of the things that we stress. In fact, the multimedia guide that I mentioned at the beginning on how to choose an infertility clinic. Part of that is to, how to, what questions to ask. How do you know what is a good lab? And this is a great example of why, you know, all clinics are not the same. And that is, you know, a lab matters, and uh, um, because. Uh, they're the ones who I did not realize, actually, that they were, I thought it was a commercial product. I didn't realize that they were creating their own. That's interesting to me. Absolutely. The lab is crucial to everything that we do. And so you definitely want embryologists in a lab that are experienced and have been working with embryos and doing lab procedures, whether it's ICSI or embryo biopsy or just culture, and have been doing that for for a long time to get the best results. Absolutely. So... Ultimately, what we care most about is a live is the live birth rate. So, and I'm sure that there has been a great deal of research on uh, whether day three transfers or day five transfers result in a higher live birth rate. Which, what, what, what do we know? I think that in general, it, there may be a trend towards lower uh, live birth rates or pregnancy rates with a day three transfer versus a day five but it's not really a reflection of the timing of the transfer. What we have to consider is that a patient who's having a day three transfer, especially at this point in time where we are more advanced in the lab, those are more likely to be embryos that were developing more slowly or we had fewer embryos to work with or we were concerned that those embryos may not make it to day five. So I think that if you look at it from this was probably, you know, a lower prognostic group from the beginning if they were transferred early versus patients who had embryos developing well or they had several that were making their marks, then the pregnancy rates would be higher for those that had more favorable embryos versus, you know, less favorable that got transferred earlier. So is it something, it's it's almost the, the thought process that it looks like none of these are going to make it to day five, so we might as well transfer at day three because if there's any chance you know, we'll roll the dice and see if that's going to, you know, if any of them will implant. Is that the kind of the, the thought process that you have to go through? Yes, sometimes there is concern, and particularly if we have just a few embryos that are developing, say a patient has one or two embryos that are developing on day two and three, then there's, you, you know, the conversation is, is there any benefit to to going to day five, it's not going to change. If we have two on day three, they're going to be the same two on day five. Should we transfer them early or should we let them develop and see which of those make it to day five? But if you have a limited number of embryos, then sometimes that's a consideration to go ahead and transfer and get them into the uterine environment sooner because you're not trying to weed out a larger pool of embryos to get to the best ones you have, what you have. And then also... Um, just the development and the quality of those embryos may be ones where we don't want to risk pushing the day five and just losing those embryos before a transfer. Is it possible to transfer to the to the to the into the fallopian tube? If that's where, in nature, um, a uh, the embryo normally develops, is it possible to get the embryo 
to that place and allow that environment to help culture it and, and grow it. There were earlier treatments where you could transfer either eggs and sperm or you could transfer an embryo to the tube, and those are not performed anymore. There were more issues. It's a more um, involved procedure to manipulate the tube and to actually place an embryo there as opposed to just doing a brief outpatient procedure where you can place an embryo in the uterus. And also some concerns about those embryos then not migrating back through the tube and getting to the to the uterus normally. So that's not something that's done anymore. It's called ZIFT or GIFT, which is where and you they, place they, a zygote or embryo in the tube. And they were the, the, the concern was, uh, at least one of the concerns, was ectopic pregnancy where the embryos exactly. were more likely to... A, implant into the fallopian tube, which is not exactly. where they're supposed to implant. Okay. Exactly. Um, we have a question from Caroline that, that, that um, uh, is, is associated with what you were just talking about, the quality of embryos. Caroline says, I'm confused about embryo grading and how that changes the day of transfer, if it even does. So let's talk about embryo grading in general. Um, Caroline, I think, knows what that means. Um, but uh, can you talk to us about uh, what grades, uh, how do we grade embryos and what does that mean? Yes, so SART, our you know, over-infertility um, organization, has made efforts to streamline and kind of standardize that process more recently. used to be that different clinics graded their embryos with different types of um, categories and criteria, so now we've got a more standardized approach where embryos are graded A, B, C, are good, fair, and poor on day three and on day five. The grading on a day three embryo, again, when you're looking at a day three embryo, you're looking for at least six to eight cells in the embryo. You want to see symmetry between those cells. So you don't want a large cell and then a few small ones. You're looking at the degree of fragmentation or cellular debris that's around the embryo. And so a grade A best quality embryo is going to have good cell number, symmetric cells, and minimal to no fragmentation. And then depending on the degrees of those factors, it's going to lead you to a fair or a poor quality embryo. A day five embryo, blastocyst looks completely different. So at that point, you should have a well identified inner cell mass, which is a separate little cluster of cells that will develop into the fetus. You'll have a scalloped appearance to the edge of the embryo, and those are the trophectoderm cells, which become a placenta. So you want to see a well-defined inner cell mass. You want to see good trophectoderm, and you look for those type of features in a day five embryo to determine if it's a good, fair, or poor-grade embryo. The other, um, a couple of years ago at the um, American Society of Reproductive Medicine Conference, ASRM, which was just a couple of weeks ago, um, there was a lot of talk about um, videoing, uh, video, uh, videoing the embryo development to see, the, as I understood it, the rapidity of the development and that that was a good indicator of a quality embryo. Um, what is the research currently showing us on that? Um, there is still interest in that. I think the, the larger issue and why that's not done more um, available at this point is because of the cost of changing lab structures and bringing in new and expensive equipment that can, you know, monitor embryo development in real time. So there are research studies showing that 
um, by doing that video monitoring of the, um, the speed that the embryo develops and the cleavage that goes on, but that gives more information than just taking a snapshot on day three and then coming back a few days later and taking a look, but seeing how that progress um, is made throughout the embryo development. I think that's something that's probably coming in the future, but will take some time to adopt just as the research comes out and as people are able to really add that that new technology to their lab and the expense of doing that. And ultimately, are they? Does it add? Uh, is the research showing that it adds information that really isn't available though from a single snapshot or a single day uh, assessment made at day three or day five? Um, is it is it worth the? Um, is the research indicating that it's worth uh, the procedure to video monitor? I think at this point, probably not worth the you know overhaul of your lab to add that in because we are comfortable with how we're monitoring. But as we just make new advances in all areas of, of infertility, I think that it's something that will be added to the treatments. But I can't say that right now the research says if you put a video in, you're going to have better pregnancy rates and you're going to see all your embryos and that it's going to make that kind of impact right off the bat. But as that improves, I think that that will give us another um, marker for how we can assess the embryos as they're developing in the lab. Yeah. Just uh, as as progress is, and, and as more research comes in, and you know, indicating whether or exactly. not it's yeah. You are listening to Creating a Family today. We're talking about IVF transfers, fresh versus frozen, three day versus five day. Our guest is Dr. Desiree McCarthy Keith. Um, we would love to have you join us on our social networks. Clout, the online ranker, now ranks us as, I think this last week we were number two online influencer in the world uh, for fertility. Or exact, they actually, yeah, they rank fertility, not infertility, but still. Uh, we hang out on Facebook, Twitter, and Pinterest, and we would love to have you join us. On Facebook, there are three ways to connect with us. You can join with me personally. I'm Davenport one you can also like our Facebook page, which is facebook.com uh, slash creating a family, or you can join our online support group. We are over 7,000 members strong now, and you can find that at facebook.com slash groups slash creating a family, or to be honest, the easiest way is just to type in creating a family in the Facebook search box. You can like the page and join the group. It's very easy. Uh, it is a closed group, uh, so you will have to be approved, but uh, we do that at least once a week. On Twitter and Pinterest, we're easier because we go by one thing, and that is at creating a family, so you can find us there then. So please join us. We would really love to have you. Um, Dr. McCarthy Keith, there has been some fascinating research in the last several years on the benefits of frozen embryo versus fresh embryo. IVF transfers. Um, can you explain that to us? Because it really does fly in the face of, of what intuitively we would think. Uh, because intuitively, we were thinking that it's better if something is fresh and not frozen, because that's certainly how it is with other things in our lives, our foods and things such as that. Um, and so it makes sense that it would be the same with embryos. Um, but it, maybe it's not. Uh, so tell us what the research is showing. So the... Um the big change between fresh and frozen, again, is that we're learning more about trying to make the uterine environment as close to natural as possible. And for some patients 
who are very hyperstimulated or overstimulated in their IVF cycle, their hormone levels may be higher, and that may not be the best environment to transfer an embryo fresh. Even though the embryo is developing well and looks vigorous and healthy, it's not as close to the physiologic environment as if we were to freeze an embryo and come back with less stimulation or do a natural cycle even where the hormone levels are closer to a natural menstrual cycle, and that way the embryo is transferred into um, a more normal environment. So that's one factor related to um, maybe why sometimes we don't transfer fresh because we want it to be closer to natural. The other issue that I think we're going to get to um, is that many of the embryos that are frozen are actually biopsied and tested. So there's another layer of information that we're getting on these frozen embryos that can increase the chance of them implanting and leading to, leading to a baby other than just it being a frozen versus a fresh embryo. Yeah, we are going to get to that. You're exactly right. You mentioned a natural cycle, um, and I'm assuming that that means a cycle where no uh, no medications are given uh, to the woman to help stimulate her uterine lining or the development of the uterine lining. Is that what you mean by a natural cycle? Correct. So it, 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 with, it, you have a choice with a frozen embryo transfer, then it sounds like, to either um, have, and, and I think this would probably depend upon the woman's diagnosis, but uh, to either uh, just allow her body to develop uh, the, the uterine lining through her natural cycle as it would happen, or um, taking medication. What, what are the advantages to each, whether uh, to, to medicate or non to medicate, uh, in order to stimulate the uterine lining? So for, some, for many patients, when it comes to doing IVF and even frozen embryo transfers, timing is very important timing of the lab, their culture media, the lab schedule. Most clinics are going to kind of bring patients through in groups or batch their cycle so that um, things are performed most efficiently in the lab and the best use of resources and media and things like that. So the timing of a natural cycle can be challenging where you have to basically go with a woman's cycle. And depending on when she starts her cycle or when she's close to ovulating, you have to be prepared to do a transfer at that point. So it can be a challenge, and that's probably the main reason that natural cycles are not performed more often is just because of the technical um, challenges of doing that. However, if a woman does have a natural cycle, I've seen patients who attempted medicated cycles and they didn't tolerate the medicines very well or they, um, they ovulate it prematurely despite being on certain medications to suppress the ovaries or things like that, and then they've gone back and done a natural cycle where we just kind of let her natural ovarian function happen, monitor the endometrium, and really just overlap the transfer with how her normal cycle is progressing. And I've seen good results with that. I think that the timing is probably the biggest challenge. And also you have to monitor patients more closely in a natural cycle since we're not giving meds to suppress ovulation or have the control to really manipulate or prolong the cycle there's greater potential to possibly miss an ovulation if she has an irregular cycle. You know, if we're kind of waiting on her to do it on her own, sometimes she can progress outside of our expectations, and that may um, be um, a limitation in performing that way also. On the flip side, a medicated cycle does allow us to really suppress the ovaries, to give the estrogen, get it to a level where we want it to be before we do an implantation. We can time the progesterone exposure of the endometrium before we put an embryo back. So we can really 
um, just manipulate the cycle and really know the details a lot better in a medicated cycle, and we can control that a lot better when we start out that way from the beginning. I haven't seen much research on this, and that probably is, is because I haven't seen it, not that it doesn't exist, on um, live birth rates compared to natural cycles. I guess it would only be applicable to frozen embryo transfers versus medicated cycles. Uh, do you know anything about any of the research that's currently being done or has been done recently? Um, I haven't seen any larger studies for that because, again, it's usually you know a, a fraction of the patients who are going through the natural cycles versus... Yeah. Um, going through the medicated. Um, just in our experience here, though, I have seen patients who have had better experiences with a natural cycle, particularly if they have not done well with a medicated cycle, whether the tolerance or have not gotten pregnant with that. It really comes down to how well the uterus responds and how that endometrium uh, develops. And there are so many factors related to, you know, the woman's whole picture of endometriosis or fibroids and different factors, uterine procedures that really determines how successful we'll be with either of the methods, actually. Uh, we hear a lot uh, now, and I think this is good, we're hearing a lot about it, about the term window of implantation. Um, that's a bit of a buzzword that's coming up a lot. Tell us what, we, uh, what you mean by window of implantation. So in a natural cycle, there is going to be, you know, a natural cycle is 28 to 30 days. And so the most likely time for a woman to ovulate if she's having regular 28-day cycles is going to be day 14 of her cycle. And so the window, if you're telling uh, couples who are trying to conceive naturally, the window of their fertility is going to be, you know, a day or two before and a day or two after um, when you expect that ovulation to happen. And the window of implantation is really going to be within that 24 to 48 hours from the time of an ovulation until that embryo, you know, finds a place to implant. So it's a smaller window of time for the implantation to actually take place. And that's why we spend so much time with monitoring and timing the days of progesterone exposure before you transfer an embryo back to the uterus. That is a very critical window where you have to have synchronization between the endometrium and the embryo in order for them to implant. So healthy embryo is one step, but you really have to have the uterus that is re ready and receptive for that implantation, and that's where the progesterone and that window come into place. Gotcha. And that's the, and that argues oftentimes, particularly as we're, as we're, the embryos are developing in the lab separately from the woman's endometrial lining that is developing. Mm -hmm. And so it's the timing of the two, and hence why uh, at least uh, some of the evidence is indicating a frozen embryo transfer might be preferable because it's at that point you're, the, the, you're only waiting on the development of the, uter the, the uterine lining. And, the, and so whenever it's ready, you're not having to wait on the, the embryo development because that embryo is frozen and it can be uh, thawed and, and transferred at that point. Uh, did I, do I understand exactly. that correctly? Yeah, exactly. So and so sometimes when we do a cycle, if the endometrium is developing a little bit more slowly, then we we still have the option to continue with that stimulation and get the embryo to the stage, or excuse me, get the endometrium to the stage we want it to be before thawing and transferring an embryo. So it really does allow us to optimize and have the best environment before we thaw an embryo and transfer. And we know that that synchronization um, is there. Excellent. You are listening to Creating a Family, and we are talking with Dr. Desiree McCarthy-Keith, 
about uh, IVF transfers, fresh versus frozen, three-day versus five-day. I want to take a moment now to thank a few more of our wonderful gold sponsors and to remind you that it is only through their generous support that we are able to bring you this show. We have the law offices of James Fletcher Thompson. They are a South Carolina firm committed to adoption and assisted reproductive law, including providing a gestational surrogacy matching program, as well as legal services, of course, for independent surrogacy, egg donation, and embryo donation matters. We also have Fairfax Cryobank. They have been a leader in sperm donation for over 25 years and are dedicated to supplying updated, verified and accurate medical and personal information on their donors. Only one in 200 applicants make it through their screening process to become a donor. All right, now you have been alluding to the the whole role of genetic testing and how it might influence um, our decisions associated with uh, when to transfer and whether to do fresh or frozen. Um, and, and that is certainly probably that one of the hottest topics, uh, particularly in the medical community as well as in the patient community. So uh, let's talk about genetic testing. Um, It's genetic testing of the embryo. So we have to have a part of the embryo in order to test. Uh, And uh, so when can we get a cell or and how many cells do we need in order to do this testing? Okay, that's perfect. So, again, the evolution of IVF, we used to do embryo testing on day three. And there were several concerns with testing a day three embryo. As I mentioned, on average, a day three embryo is going to be composed of six to eight cells. And to biopsy an embryo on day three will require taking one of those cells away from the embryo. So you can reduce the volume of the embryo when you only have a few cells at that time to take a whole cell away. We also get less cells and less information when you're biopsying on day three. Another concern with a day three biopsy was the the um, concept of mosaicism, which is where if you take one cell away from that embryo and you get a diagnosis from that one cell, it may or may not represent the chromosomal content of the whole embryo. And you can get a negative result from that cell and discard an embryo that may have been normal or vice versa. So now uh, we are performing biopsies on day five. Again, the embryo is more advanced. The cells have kind of merged together we're able to get more cells with a day five biopsy. And so we feel that we get more cells, we can get better information, more reliable information. We're not reducing the, um, the volume of the embryo to the same degree. And we can get um, good information when we do an embryo biopsy at that stage as compared to day three without the concerns for the mosaicism of the four. So there is less mosaicism because you've got more uh, cell mass to be and uh, more cells to analyze. Is, is that the, is that the interpretation? Exactly. And also, if you look at a day three embryo, they really are separate cells that are just kind of clustered together, almost like a cluster of grapes. And then by day five, those cells really start to merge together, and the inner cell mass becomes the feet, you know pre-fetal tissue. And the trophectoderm is actually where the biopsy is performed. So we do not biopsy the cells that are going to develop into the fetus. This also allows us to biopsy cells that are distant from the cells that will develop into the embryo, so we're not reducing that volume, and we're getting um, more cohesive information about that whole embryo because we're getting more cells that have started to merge and to develop and divide. Intuitively, that just makes such that just seems such a safer process. When you are uh, taking 
you've got at day three a six to eight uh, cell mass, and you're taking one of those. I mean, exactly. that's, that's a significant reduction. What I mean, how, you probably are getting part of the cell that would have grown into the fetus, not not into the placenta. So, what are you taking? I mean, what what's the risk? Could you be taking something that could not be uh, made up or could not be replicated? Are you going to um, cause I, I birth defects result? Well, we're, we were early enough in the development that when you're doing a day three biopsy, the concern was more with the information that you're getting than the actual harm to the embryo because those cells will continue to divide and to develop into a blastocyst. So not as likely for a day three biopsy to cause a birth defect or to cause a problem with how the embryo develops later, but it's more about where we getting information from that biopsy that was really um, reliable and that we could share with our patients and help them to make a decision about that embryo. Okay, that makes sense. Okay, so now we know that, that, that if possible, the choice is to uh, do genetic testing at day five. So what, how does that influence when you transfer? You're also keeping in mind we're also the preferred day to transfer is day five. So that puts a lot happening on one day. It does, and there are several labs throughout the country who perform the um, the testing on the, on the embryo biopsies. Depending on where your clinic is located, your testing facility may be in a different state or it might take some time before you get those results back. So unless you have the capability to run that testing and get the turnaround in 24 hours, most clinics are biopsying embryos on day five, freezing the embryos at that point, sending the biopsy sample to their reference laboratory, and then waiting for that report to come back in a week or so. And at that point, you have very specific information about the chromosomal content of each embryo that was biopsied. And once you get that information, then you prepare for a frozen cycle um, once you get back the report of where the normal embryos are. So a fresh transfer after biopsy is usually not performed. Okay, and unless, unless you... And- for, you happen to have a lab either in your um, have a testing ability in your lab or live near one of the or your not live near but your clinic is near one of the uh, testing um, or exactly. and, and and then even if it's in your if, let's say you have the the capability of running the the analysis of testing the genetic testing in your own lab you also then would have to make the decision of whether to to transfer one would think most logically on day six. Um, I guess you could get it back if it was done first thing in the morning and come back in the afternoon. Is that how it's done, mm-hmm. or do they then test on uh, transfer on day six if they're wanting to do a fresh? Usually, at day six, you would do. You know, you need to do biopsy very early on the morning of day five, and in some situations, you can get that turnaround time and get an uh, get a biopsy result back. Um, in less than 24 hours, but majority of times it's going to be go ahead and biopsy and freeze. And then the other thing, as we always also already mentioned, is that the environment of the fresh cycle may be a reason to not transfer a fresh, even if you can get the biopsy results back. If a patient's mm-hmm. hormone levels, estrogen is very high, if her progesterone has elevated during her cycle, then those are reasons that you don't necessarily want to do a fresh transfer, even if you were able to do that. So we have to take all that into consideration. 
Yes, in other words, she might have peaked, her, her uterine lining might have peaked at day five, and then if you wait till day six, then you've missed the peak uh, uh, window of implantation. Possibly, or that it was just not, not even the day five versus day six, but if she has estrogen level that's, you know, 4,000 or she was hyperstimulated in her cycle where a fresh transfer would put her at further risk for hyperstimulation or that you just are looking for a more natural environment with lower estrogen levels that you can really control, then that may be a reason to not do a fresh transfer, even if you can get that quick turnaround time. So how long would uh, should the, should the, let's say you freeze, you make the decision, that you're going to freeze the embryos and do a mm-hmm. frozen embryo transfer. Does is there any evidence that says that you should give the woman's body a month or two to get back to to normal uh before you do it or should you do it the the following month because at this point everybody's anxious to you know to find out if it's going to work. Exactly. So it's usually recommended that you at least have 1 month between the stimulated cycle and then getting back to a more natural cycle for the transfer. And, you know, based on just the physiology of the cycle, it's really not possible to do a transfer any sooner than that because after an egg retrieval, the hormone levels have to come down. The woman needs to have a menstrual withdrawal and shed that lining, and it takes some time to do that, and then start to prepare the endometrium for a transfer. So it's usually a month minimum between a fresh cycle and getting to a frozen transfer anyway. But at least a month between those cycles um, is recommended. Okay, so people need to realize that it does add a month or two uh, onto the process if the option is made to do a frozen, to freeze the embryos and uh, and transfer thawed embryos at a later date. Exactly, and then if we're talking about embryo testing, patients have to be prepared for any result to come back from those biopsies. So ideally. We want to test embryos, identify the normals, and have those embryos available for transfer. But when we test, especially when we have certain higher risk groups that we really encourage the embryo testing in, there's always potential for us to have few or no normal embryos available once we do that testing. The first step of embryo grading is the morphology and how the embryo looks in the lab under the microscope. And so you can have embryos that look totally normal in their blastocyst development, And then when you biopsy, the chromosomes may be abnormal. And if we get to that point, then we have to talk about, you know, what we would do differently. So patients who we recommend have biopsy are women who are older, who are in the late 30s or over 40, where we know that egg quality is starting to change and more likely to have abnormal embryo development. Women who've had recurrent miscarriages, that may be due to a chromosomal abnormality or patients who have a genetic disease that there's risk of them passing on to their child if both um, parents carry a recessive gene and a child can inherit that. So those are the types of patients who we strongly encourage to have the embryo testing, and then we have to be prepared for to handle whatever those results come back as. So in other words, people may need time to assess and, and not with no pressure that they have to hurry and make a decision. Is that what you're saying? Yes, and also just that with more information, there come more complications sometimes. 
And so our goal is always go through IVF, get plenty of eggs, healthy embryos, and have a baby. But if we keep adding in steps of testing the embryos, culture them further in the lab, and now we're biopsying to see where they're healthy, there is a natural attrition that goes through that whole process where the follicles that we begin with in a cycle, each of those is not going to lead to a baby and a healthy embryo or healthy embryo and a baby at the end. So there's a drop-off along the way. And we, we counsel patients about that, and we have to be ready for, you know, any kind of results that can come back from those biopsy reports. I've seen all healthy embryos. I've seen where none of the embryos have been healthy. It's usually a mix of the two, but we have seen all results. And what is the attrition rate now uh, in uh, cryopreservation? Um, that is a concern that a lot of people have. I mean, if we can... Thaw em- I mean, the, as someone once told me, um, the, the trick is not in the freezing. The trick is in the thawing, uh, getting uh, embryos to thaw without damaging cells and things such as that. But but we but the cryopreservation techniques have improved dramatically in the last, I guess, probably ten exactly. years or so. So yes, and that's uh, much. How much of a danger do we have? I would say, um, first you say the trick is in the thawing. I would go a step back and say the trick is really in the quality of the embryo before it's frozen. So if an embryo is well-developed, if it's a healthy embryo, if it's genetically tested, those are embryos that are more likely to survive being vitrified and then thawed um, and to lead on to a healthy implantation. On average, the chance of an embryo surviving being frozen and thawed is about 80 to 90%. So majority of embryos, if they are healthy when they're frozen, are going to do just fine through that process. Um, but we do occasionally see where a healthy embryo does not re-expand or does not thaw um, well after that process. You know, ultimately, um, I think most uh, people going through IVF, their ultimate concern or worry um, is for the health of the children conceived. And has there been any long-term research uh, comparing children um, who were conceived through either a day three or a day five transfer? And let me stop and say that it it is very hard to get good research on long-term health impacts of IVF on the children. It's a a source of frustration for, I think, for all of us. But... uh, Given that there is not a great deal of research, uh, what uh, what does the research show? <laughs> um, I am not aware of good studies that look at, you know, outcomes for day three versus day five as far as birth defects and things like that. What we do know is that we have seen an evolution of day three to day five with just the development of IVF in this country in the past 30 years, and there are large studies looking at children born from just IVF treatments in general, and right. it really looks like the risk of major birth effects is the same. It's about 2 to 4% whether children are born um, through natural conception or through going through fertility treatment. So overall, does not appear to be a greater um, increase of those birth effects and things, but I'm not aware of great studies that show a comparison between day three and day five. I'm not either. I was hoping maybe you knew one. <laughs> what about uh, any uh, research on uh, uh, long, uh, long-term uh, research? Because ultimately, that's the most important type. We want to follow kids and see not just at the moment of birth, but how are they doing when they're six, seven, eight, that type of thing. On, um, but is there any research on health of children conceived from either fresh or frozen IVF cycles? You could make my day if you say yes. There is some great research out there. Sorry, Don. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> we <laughs> we don't we don't have those kind of comparisons either. We just have the general look, but um, that may be something that's coming in the future to really get down into the specifics of fresh versus frozen. But I have not seen, you know, long-term studies on on those outcomes either. Yeah, I didn't either, and I actually went at the <laughs> ASRM. Um, um, conference just a couple of weeks ago. I went to the poster presentations and uh, I didn't listen to all of them, but I did walk through and, and was hoping to find. I love the posters, so yeah. I uh, the, the the mark of a true true research geek is the one who goes to the posters. But uh, I didn't see anything there, and I don't believe there was any um, um, presentations on it either. So uh, at this year's mm-hmm. or last year's, for that matter. So. And I would guess that the bigger research and the posters that you'll see, if it's talking about fresh versus frozen, are really focusing on the genetics and the embryo biopsy. And that's where the focus is these days on the delineation and not just the day of the transfer or fresh or frozen. Right, but that's not the, the the question I would like to see answered. Because yeah, obviously the reason that you're doing the that you're waiting, and if you're doing genetic testing, is because so you would expect that the genetics of a child uh, conceived through after genetic testing, you're going to have less chromosomal issues because you've tested for those. Um, True. Yeah, so the question to me, the, the the more important question, or not more important, but a different question, is is there, uh, how are those children, if we were comparing them, doing into adolescence, or you know, uh, or let's or let's don't be that that may be a little too ambitious. Let's just say through five and six, is there any difference mm-hmm. um, for those children? And and that research, I don't know if it's not being done, or um, uh, it's not being done here in the U.S. I don't think, but. Mm-hmm. We and I think hope. that you, exactly. Hopefully, it's coming. One thing that I always reinforce with my patients, though, is that even if we do the testing and we confirm that the chromosomes are normal, that does not a normal karyotype does not exclude, you know, structural growth problems or developmental right. issues and things like that. So that can still occur, even though we have tested and we have assurance that the chromosomes and the embryo, you know, the chromosome count was normal, there can still be other issues that arise. That is such a good point. It's, it's an issue that needs to be made with genetic testing because there is the, mm-hmm. I think, the misconception sometime amongst the patient community that if their embryos have had genetic testing, that means that there is very low risk of, when there is very low risk, but that there is zero chance that anything can go wrong, and that just simply isn't the case. Exactly, and we tell patients, you know, even if we test an embryo and we've confirmed it's normal, the risk of miscarriage does reduce, but it will never be zero. So for a natural conception or just average risk of miscarriage in the first trimester is usually about 15 to 20%, which is kind of high. If we test an embryo and confirm it's normal, the risk of miscarriage goes down to about 5 to 10%. So it's much lower, but it still is not you know, excluded completely. We have kind of a geeky question um, that I was debating okay. on whether I'm not sure uh, that it has a lot of general interest, but it has a great deal of interest to Lou, so we're going to ask it. Uh, and I'm not sure if Lou is a he or a she. Um, asking about the importance of air quality in the lab on embryo development and uh, our labs with better air quality, better able to grow embryos to day five. Um, so this is, yeah, this is a little more esoteric than our usual questions. Uh, thoughts on air quality issues? 
Absolutely. Any IVF lab that you visit, you will have to raise your voice as you walk through the lab because there are very sophisticated ventilation and air quality and monitoring systems that have to be in place in order for embryos to have the best environment to develop in. So we know that air quality is very important and that needs to be monitored and you want a you know, you want the system to be filtered and to not have those kind of influences on the embryos. So that's a great question. And there's lots of, you know, fans and filters and things that have to be in place in order for that IVF lab to function. You know, IVF labs are so darn cool. They are so interesting. <laughs> they are. I just, uh, and actually I've been in your lab, believe it or not, you would have no way of knowing mm-hmm. this, but I uh, uh, was a long time ago uh, had gone into your lab and talked with uh, Dr. Tucker and uh, mm-hmm. and. I, I, they were just, it's absolutely, I mean, what a cool job to be an embryologist. Think I about agree. It. I know. I just think it's so fascinating. Yeah, so so questions on air quality just seem cool to me, but I'm not sure that that's a universally uh, uh, considered thought, but anyway, or felt thought. Um, let me thank you so much, Dr. McCarthy Keith, for being our guest today to talk about IVF transfer, all things IVF transfer. Let me take a moment to ask our listeners, this show, as well as everything we do at Creating a Family, exists because of the support from people just like you. So please take a moment and consider giving us a donation. Uh, It can be a small amount, $5 a month. It can be a recurring donation or it can be a set donation. You can go to our website, creatingafamily.org, and you can find the button for Donate there, and we would really appreciate it. I know that everybody is going to want to get more information about Dr. Desiree McCarthy-Keith uh, at uh, Georgia Reproductive Specialist. So you can, to get more information, you can go to their website, which is the best IVF website around, and it is IVF.com. And you can get more information uh, about uh, Dr. McCarthy-Keith there or uh, be able to ask, ask questions. Thank you so much for joining us today, and I will see you next week. The Starlight Lounge presents An Evening with the Progressive Box. Moon. Yeah. That's Hugo, tickling the ivories. He just saved by bundling home and auto with Progressive. Gonna finally buy a ring for that gal of yours, Hugo? Send her my condolences. Hi-oh! This next one's for you, too. There's a burglar in my heart. Thank you. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discounts not available in all states or situations. The Starlight Lounge presents An Evening with the Progressive Box. Moon, yeah. That's Hugo, tickling the ivories. He just saved by bundling home and auto with Progressive. Gonna finally buy a ring for that gal of yours, Hugo? Send her my condolences. Hi-oh! This next one's for you, too. There's a burglar in my heart. Thank you. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discounts not available in all states or situations.